This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Ahmad Fuad Rahmat and welcome to Night School, the show that explores key themes in history, the social sciences and the humanities. We critically unpack theories, frameworks and social phenomena, the better to understand how society works. Each week we discuss a classic text, theme or an idea that we hope to shed light on the world around you. Joining us this week is Chua Guat Eng. She is a historical figure, the first female Malaysian novelist in English. That is to write a novel in English and she's here to share us her thoughts and her observations on the development of Malaysian uh, literature in English. And uh, it's a pet curiosity of mine over the years. I mean, I have a long reading list now, but in my mind, one day, I do want to go through our canon, right? Because uh, especially your columns, they help me appreciate the richness a lot more. And unfortunately, the richness isn't quite appreciated. But let's welcome you to the show first. Welcome. Welcome back. We've had you Thank before. Thank you, Fuad. Thank you. Now, I want to get into your interests in this field. But before that, I also want to get to know you a little better. You're known for your novels, Echoes of Silence, the one that I always hear about. Mm-hmm. But you also were trained in literature in Germany before that, um, yeah, in and UM. Before, so what's the yeah. story? Well, I went to university. When I went to university, I studied English literature. It was English literature in those days, of course, you know. And after that, I spent two years as a tutor at MU, working on a master's. But then 1969 happened and there was a kind of, in me, there was a kind of cultural reorientation because I suddenly asked myself, yeah, why am I doing a Mm. master's Mm -hmm. on obscure English poet, you know? So although I, I had my thesis written, I saw no point in submitting it. Mm -hmm. At that time then, Goethe Institute offered me a scholarship. Mm -hmm. So I went to Germany. I learned, you know, I I sat for the major diploma in German language Mm -hmm. at Goethe Institute. But at the same time, they allowed me to go to the university. They got me a scholarship to go to Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, where I, you know, sat through Mm -hmm. lectures and seminars on German literature. And it was quite eye-opening because their approach to literature is really so different. Mm -hmm. In what way? Much more, how shall we say, much more scholarly. Mm -hmm. Because here, there tend, well, when I was, there is this, I think it's in the Anglo Anglo world, you know, Anglo-American world, there is in literature kind of, almost like an amateurish. One takes pride in being almost an amateur in Mm -hmm. this thing. You know, you love it, so you do it. Mm -hmm. Whereas what I found in Germany was that it is a scholarship. Mm -hmm. It is, they pay a lot of attention to how you interpret books Mm -hmm. and then how you approach Mm -hmm. your interpretation and how you look at books. You know, you cannot say, for instance, there is such a thing as what they call study of text. Mm-hmm. So you look at old manuscripts and you compare how a work has developed mm-hmm. from the manuscripts that the poets left behind. So it's also poetics. Yeah. Yeah, so it was interesting. very interesting. Yeah. How significant was that in the development of your own writing? I mean, 
you made history by becoming the first woman writer in English, right? Yeah, first yeah. woman uh, novelist, in fact. Yeah. So uh, was that significant going to a different context outside the Anglo-speaking sphere to see a different feel of literature? Oh, very much so. Because for me, going to Germany was, I felt it was important because I would be looking at the British mm-hmm. heritage that mm-hmm. we had, you know, the legacy that we have inherited from a totally different point of view. Mm-hmm. It was really wonderful because then, you know, you get that distance and you see, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it's... Um, perspective. A different perspective, yeah. yeah. How uh, significant then is that comparison of perspectives in your own identity as a writer in the sense that you know, then you come back here, it's highly racialized. And mm. at that point, Malaysia was just coming out of mm. the turmoil of independence, mm. questions about who counts as Malaysian was mm. part of public discourse. And then the Cold War was happening. It was a very exciting time to write, right? Yeah. So at what point did you say, I'm going to be a novelist, I'm going to talk about Malaysia, right? And a very complex juncture of its history. <laughs> this is so silly, you know, it sounds so silly, but... I always knew I would write. Mm-hmm. At the age of 10, I started my first novel, you know. didn't get very far because I was 10, sure, you sure. know, and I didn't understand plot. So I ran out of episodes to write about. <laughs> but the following year, when I was 11, we had the 11 plus exam, standard six. Mm. And there was... Um, the class teacher was being examined, I think, by some supervisor. She was at the back of the class, so the class teacher was very nervous. And she had put up this picture of a of an Aboriginal boy, you know, with a blowpipe. And the class, we were encouraged to talk about this picture. And it was not going well. And out of compassion for this teacher, because I could see her hands were she was trembling, you know. Mm. I stood up and just told the story of this Aboriginal boy and I said his name is Abu because when he was born, he was very sickly and so the mother had to, you know, cover mm. him in warm ashes and all that kind of thing. And I, I discovered plot. Mm-hmm. Later, that story was written up as a radio play. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, and sent to Radio Malaya in those days, you know, you to the, the education. No, I never listened to it. <laughs> but they paid me some money <laughs> okay. for it. So I was I was a professional already yeah. Yeah, yeah. at the age of 11. Yeah, so I always knew. And I always knew that if I wrote, it would be about Malaysia. Mm-hmm. So there was no question about that. There's already there in your instincts, in your learning, in your studying, that one day you are going to write. Yeah, it's already there. I, yeah, I always... I, yeah. yeah. Can you assess the English language mm-hmm. as a medium for narratives in Malaysia? Because on one hand, mm-hmm. it's not really rooted here, but mm-hmm. on the, maybe not yet, maybe not to the extent that we should recognise it. But on mm-hmm. the other hand, it also carries with it the colonial legacy. So how do you straddle the two fine lines there? Well, you know, I think English is rooted in this country in many ways. It is inevitable, you know, whether or not it's part of the colonial legacy or not. I think that is something that, yeah, well, maybe there is some of that. Yeah, I notice that, especially with the younger generation. I think people of my generation, we were more national, mm. you know, more conscious of nation. But 
you know, the English language has entered the Malay language, has entered the Chinese language, and, you know, in the Malaysian languages. We use it all the time. So it's rooted. It's You can't cut it off and right. say, no, this does not belong to us. We've made it our mm-hmm. own. You know, we, we speak our own kind of English. We make fun of it maybe, but yeah. we still... So I think it is part of our landscape of languages, shall we say. Mm-hmm. You can't get rid of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But do you sense, though, that it has not quite attained mass status, right? In a sense, that at least in the world I do as an educator or even some of the civil society activities I do, I know that in the end of the day, this might not adequately speak to Mm-hmm. the nation more broadly. And mm-hmm. and then that raises the question of what language can actually do that, right? Because we're so complex. So yeah. on one hand, it's an interesting position to be in because we have localized our language, like you say. But on the other hand, it's also just another bubble out of many other bubbles, right? Well, that's inevitable. Mm-hmm. And that's why we need a national language mm-hmm. so that we have a language that everyone, you know, can use. I mean, when I speak to my Chinese plumber, I use Malay because mm-hmm. I can't speak Chinese and he can't speak English, you know. So we speak in Malay. I speak to shopkeepers and all that. So we need a national language. But I'm talking about um, it's not the necessity so much as the historical fact mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. we have already yeah. an existing colourful palette of colours, mm-hmm. of languages, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and we can't erase, yeah. we can't erase it. Yeah. Yeah. Can you also tell us more about your interest then in the history of Malaysian literature in English? Do you sense then that it's slowly forming into a coherent canon or is it just still quite scattered at this point? What are your impressions so far? My impression is that we are still trying to find our feet. Mm-hmm. If you look at the development of the Malaysian, say, the novel, right? Because most of our writings in English are lit fiction in English. It would be short stories. Mm-hmm. We're much better or more prolific short story writers than novelists. Novelists take mm-hmm. a long time, you know. But if you take the development of the novel, then you find that in the early, say, after independence, because before that, people were writing. There weren't many local people writing anyway. People may have written with, they may have had local names, but they were actually expatriates, you know. Or if they wrote as local people, they wrote in imitation of the Western writers. We didn't really have an identity as Malaysian writers until after independence and particularly I'm looking at 1965 as a starting point because before that we were kind of like Siamese twins with the Singaporean writers you know, Mm -hmm. so that period but once Singapore was out their literature in English developed in one direction and ours developed in another direction then we have a sense of identity and the older writers would write very consciously of themselves as Malaysians about the local mm. scenery and mm. all that, you know. So you have people like Johnny Ong who wrote Run, Tiger, Run. And, you know, most of these books are not available mm. anymore. But, of course, the starting point for many people was Lloyd Fernando's Scorpion Orchid mm-hmm. when it took on this issue of nation, mm-hmm. you know. So that is what I've been writing about in the articles mm-hmm. 
how is nation dealt with in our local literature? Mm-hmm. Is it dealt with at all? Mm-hmm. So that kind of. Thing. Do you sense then that there is a certain degree of flexibility in English that maybe other languages don't have? In that, all the other national languages, Malay, Chinese, Indian, are mm. ethnicized, mm. right? Whereas English does not have that baggage. Well, you mm. can talk about colonial whiteness, but post independence, English took a life of its own, mm. and that it could be represented by people of different mm. uh, ethnicities, right? So mm. they're not necessarily bound to their culture. Mm. They could speak to maybe a more cosmopolitan world that might be reading them or, or something like that. So. Is there a greater degree of freedom in that sense for a Malaysian writer to use English that would take it out of the provincial bounds of identity and stuff like that? Yeah, well, this is the thing about Malaysian literature in English, right? Malaysian English language writers have been accused in the past, in the 1970s, you know, of not knowing the reality of the Malaysian world, mm. Malaysia. You I know? think that, that accusation okay. still rings true today, right? People still make it's it. I, you hear it here and there, yeah. Yeah, but actually, our writers are very much in touch with reality. They deal with a multicultural setting. If you look at, say, Malay literature or, or I suppose Tamil, I don't know, or Chinese mm. literature, they tend to be very communal. Yeah. Communal-centered, you know. So which would you say is more national? Mm -hmm. It's actually the English fiction, right? Where we look at everything. And very often, because most of the writers, in fact, probably all of them, come from an urban setting, Mm -hmm. which is anyway more multicultural, Mm -hmm. more diverse, you know. That's the world they talk about, and that's the reality. And I think people tend to forget that the Malay world of the policy makers in the 1960s and 1970s has disappeared. Mm-hmm. Everywhere is urbanized, yep. you know. Yep. There is no... And that was the thing about my days of change, my novel, you know. Mm-hmm. There is probably no idyllic kampung anymore. Yeah, yeah. Yep. You know? Um, and I, I find it interesting that idyllic kampung is still mm. a fantasy that we still hold on to, mm. you know, even mm. many, many decades through urbanization. Anyway, uh, let's take a pause for now. In the mm. second part of the show, I want to get into more particulars, maybe a sketch of the history briefly where the mm. key turning points happened and yeah. then we can kind of see what the implications were from there. But once again, we are joining me, Ahmad Fuad Rahmat. With us this week is Chua Guat Eng, novelist and scholar of Malaysian literature in English and we are on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to me, Ahmad Fuad Rahma, and this is Night School. And joining us this week is Chua Gua Eng. She is a novelist, historical figure in many ways, first woman novelist in English, first Malaysian woman to write a novel in English, rather. And we are here to talk about that, the journey in writing, the politics of using English language, and what perspectives Malaysian literature in English might offer for a better self-understanding. In the first part of the show, we got a good consideration of those topics. But let's go more specifically in the second part of the show. Where does one start, right? Because nowadays, I think we've come to it rather belatedly in the boom of the Mm. book sales over the past four or five Mm. years with the rise of festivals here and there. People are getting to know that there is this rather rich history of Malaysian literature in English. But based on your columns, I gather that it's been a story that's been developing for a long time, right, from the 60s onwards even. So, how does one start this journey? (laughs) As you would start anything, any journey, you set out what you're interested in, Mm -hmm. you know. I became interested 
in Malaysian literature. Like many people, I never bothered to read Malaysian literature mm-hmm. until I thought I would write a novel myself, mm-hmm. you know. And then I thought, okay, I better go and see what other people are writing. And so I read those novels, Lloyd Fernando, mm-hmm. those that are available. You know, you can't go back very far because those books are no longer in print. So Lloyd Fernando's books, Lee Kok Liang, you know, and K.S. Maniam and all that. And then I wrote my novel. Then I went to do my PhD. And when I went to do my, I didn't want to do my PhD. I wanted to do a master's, but mm-hmm. it became a PhD. And obviously, because of my turning point, remember, in the 60s, mm-hmm. where li- English literature was concerned, I said, okay, it's going to be Malaysian literature. Mm-hmm. And for my thesis, I worked on two novels, Lloyd Fernando and Lee Kok Liang, because they were very problematic novels. Because when I read them, and I read what other people said about them, I thought, are they reading the same books? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because my perspective was totally different. You know, I approached it differently. Now, maybe I'm reading books differently. So then I said, okay, I'm going to create Mm -hmm. a reading methodology, you know, based on whatever I could find in Buddhist philosophy Mm -hmm. because the analytical tools. And then when I went to do my postdoc, obviously, I continued with Malaysian literature. But this time, I was interested because I had started with Lloyd Fernando and Lee Kok Liang, who were very interested in nation at that time, mm-hmm. you know, obviously. And nation they were, building. their period were when? 60s, 70s? 70s. 70s. 76 was Scorpion Orchid and 81 was Flowers in the Sky. Mm-hmm. That was a time when you know, we were being divided. Mm -hmm. That was the beginning of the divisiveness that entered. And, you know, we were trying to understand why, Mm -hmm. you know, and how do we bring people together. Mm -hmm. Then I went on to do my postdoc at UPM, and for which I'm very grateful because they kept me for two years to allow Mm -hmm. me to do my fellowship there, you know. That was when I decided that I would see how I, I came with this idea that this concept of national unity is a myth. Mm -hmm. Actually, we are not talking so much about national unity as we are talking about social integration. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How do we stay together Mm -hmm. in times of crisis, right? It's a whole spectrum of what we mean by social integration. On one end, you have the people who say you must all speak the same language, have the same religion, you know, Mm -hmm. identity. And right at the other end of the spectrum is the one that says, well, why can't we keep our own identities, you know, and there are different. And so I said, okay, let me look at how these novels approach this question of social integration. Mm -hmm. And that's how it began. What do novels offer to that debate? Because it's an usual debate, it still hasn't been resolved, even though that Mm. landscape has changed a lot. But we tend to talk about it from very ethnocentric perspectives or Mm. very policy-driven, technocratic perspectives. Mm -hmm. What do literatures in English written by Malaysians offer, right? Given what we know of like the English language's, I guess, freedom when it comes to not being bound to certain identities Mm. or something Mm. like that. Is there insights from the form itself that we can gather? You know, to think through those mm. issues better. Not so much through the form as through the content. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't want to suggest that our writers are writing consciously from mm-hmm. 
the idea of nation building or social integration or whatever. But when you read the novels and you look for the, there are certain ways, you mm-hmm. know, of looking at a novel to look at certain aspects of the novels, how they deal with them. In the last couple of articles, I've been talking about heritage novels. Those are the most ethnocentric of the novels in English, mm-hmm. where each group, right, the Malays would talk about the history and the heritage, the Chinese mm-hmm. and the South Asian. Right? I group them together, mm-hmm. those from India and Sri Lanka. The one that's coming out is Chinese heritage novels, you know. And what I discovered, you've got to look at a whole lot of sure. them and you look for trends. Mm-hmm. That's how it is. So what I noticed is that just as with the South Asian writers, there is not homogeneous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's very diversified. The same with Malay society. Sure. There's so many different aspects, you know, different groups within mm-hmm. that big group. So with the Chinese, less so culturally, there is less a sense of like, oh, you're different from me. You're Hakka and I'm Hokkien. Right, no, right. There is not so much of that. But the difference that affects their novels is this. It depends on the history of their migration of mm-hmm. the first immigrant. Right. Who came first? When did they come? And where did they settle? Mm-hmm. So if they were the Peranakan, then they write in a certain way. If they were from the later immigrants who came during the British colonial period, you know, and settled mainly in, in the tin mines of Peninsula Malaysia, mm-hmm. then they wrote in a different way. And then you have the Sarawakian. We have only one Sarawakian mm-hmm. novelist in English. Mm-hmm. He writes differently. And his name is Alex Ling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he would be a descendant of the Chinese who went to Sarawak Mm -hmm. during the time of the White Rajas. Interesting. So it's a history of migration that affects the way they look at Mm -hmm. things. Now, I found that in the first decade of this century, you know, the 2000s, there were six novels. Suddenly, they appeared. The new later immigrants never really contributed very much. You know, because of the English education of the Peranakan, they were the ones who wrote before mm-hmm. that, you know, of the Chinese writers in English. Suddenly, there were two writers who were writing this very Chinese heritage type of novels. And they were about immigration, about the first migrant, you know, about the hardship they went through and all that kind of thing. It's the migrant story. Mm-hmm. With Peranakan literature... You find very little of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There are only two novels by local Peranakan. Once they leave the country, then there is this longing, this right, kind of, and right. they start to write about it. You know? So you would be among the two? Because there are only two local Peranakan novelists, right? Uh, wait, no more. Oh, oh, the, okay. the, the two that have written heritage novels ah, right, right. specifically about Peranakan right, culture, right. there are only two. There are other Peranakan writers. Lee Kot Liang was Peranakan. Oh, I'm Peranakan. Right, right. And I noticed reading Lee Kot Liang's stories that you hardly realise his Chinese, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The narrators, the narration and all that. Now, he writes about, even in his very early stories, he was writing about Malays. He was writing about the hardships of people, you know. He was a socialist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. And people have said that about my works as well, mm-hmm. that 
there is a non-ethnic. There is it's not no, bound to an identity. Yeah, yeah, no, no identity. And I also noted, you see, that that is probably a Peranakan thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that there aren't people writing about Peranakan culture, about heritage, but these are usually people who write memoirs mm-hmm. and non-fiction. Is it, it because Peranakan identity may be less politicized nationally? Could that be the reason that there's no real compelling need to articulate Peranakan identity explicitly through those novels? Could it be that? Hmm, I don't know. You see, I don't think that for the politicians who politicize the idea of being Chinese, they care whether you're Peranakan or not. Right, it's only right. because we all look the same, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think it's this that. Historically, the Peranakan have always, you know, they speak Malay mm-hmm. at home. They are, you know, at home in the Malay culture. They are very open to other cultures. They were the first to go and learn English and all that. And because of this, they have this history of being the mediators between the rulers and the local people. Interesting. And I think this tradition is certainly, I'm talking about Lee Kotlang and myself, right, you know, right. but... That seems to be it in our novels. But you see, if you look at the novels of even, say, Chin Ki On, who did write this Pranakan heritage novel, he calls it Twilight of the Nyonyas, you know, for mm-hmm. him it's like a dying thing already, you know. <laughs> but, was he writing from overseas? or No, 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 no local. Right. Local, yeah. okay. But the books he wrote before this had to do with the experience of being in Malaysia during the Japanese occupation and so on. Mm-hmm. So there is this openness. The idea of being ethnocentric is very, mm-hmm. I think, a bit yeah. foreign. I mean, Pranakan is always more, I guess, when non-Malaysians try to want to know what Pranakan is, the word I use is Creole. It's a little bit, it's a bit more like, you're more dynamic, you're more fluid than other identities, it seems to me. I guess, but we're disappearing, you know, we're uh, being absorbed. Uh, and there isn't a clear, in the old days when I was younger, yes, it was very clearly a Pranakan culture, you know. On the, a side note, why is that? Why, why is it disappearing? disappearing? Yeah. Well, because we were small to begin with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then people intermarry, you know, they marry. So then the culture gets... And, you know, it's it's um, changing times. Uh, in my mother's day, no one ever thought twice about wearing the kabaya and the mm-hmm, sarong, yeah, you well, know. Yeah. That was the dress. But, of course, with modernization... It, And having a kabaya tailored and embroidered is extremely expensive, you know, and you need the karongsang and, you know, you need all those accessories to make it. So it's almost like being in fancy dress. Right, right. Especially given today, right, how things have changed. Yes, yes. Now, Rehman Rashid just passed away Mm. and he's an iconic uh, Mm. name in the history of Malaysian literature in English. Where do you situate his legacy and his contribution? Oh, very much in the center of things, mm-hmm. yes. He, I suppose, yeah, Raymond, he had such a love for the country, you know, so much. So it's almost like a passion. And I think that, sadly, I think, that seems to be less pronounced or less noticeable in younger writers. Mm. I think that is part of that generation that I belong to, the ones who cared. You mm-hmm. know, we grew up at a time when when the nation was being formed, you know, we knew what it mm-hmm. was like. 
And Raymond, of course, was in the thick of things as a journalist. So he knew, yeah, I I think the country broke his heart many mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting too that he marked, it seems to me, a turning point in the sense that his popularity made people know about local literature in English, but mm. also, I think, inspired subsequent writers to take on the mantle, so to speak, you know, to think about Malaysia, but also, like, be mm. comfortable writing about in English. But I think it was also the timing, right? I think late 80s, early 90s, the economy mm. was picking up, mm. publishing mm. industry was picking up, and so forth. How about looking forward to the future? Do you feel optimistic that Malaysian literature in English is going to have a more mainstream, prominent place in local arts discourse? It really depends on the people who are discussing mm-hmm. how open they are. You know, if their views are going to be determined by conventional ideas of what literature is and whether it's high literature or low literature and all that, they may scoff at much of what is being written today mm-hmm. because a lot of the books that come out of Fixie, they're good, you know, but people tend to think of it as pulp. And mm-hmm. that is Amir Muhammad's fault. He has said he wants pulp right. fiction, you know. Yeah. But they are worth studying. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you will study graphic novels, why wouldn't you study... Right. Pulp so-called? fiction, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Pulp fiction is also part of our culture. But we have a certain snobbishness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in our society, you know. And this snobbishness is part of the Anglo thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and it's it doesn't help that we're still largely a feudal culture. Everybody's checking where they are in the hierarchy, and this you see this in the arts as well. Yeah, know? exactly, exactly. Uh, no, I think as long as there are writers who are willing to write about Malaysia, who care about Malaysia, mm-hmm. then it will do well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we need readers. We need buyers of books. Yeah, that's that uh, is a difficult thing, and that's the problem too. Just because someone's a buyer of books doesn't mean they're readers. Of books as well. Yeah, I'm, it doesn't I'm at matter. fault of that as they well. They don't have to read as I've long got, as they buy. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a long list waiting, but you're right. Yeah, the industry needs support. The industry exactly. has to be an industry, has to grow, right? Yeah. Thanks a lot for your insights, Gua Eng. I think you've left us with a lot to think about, a lot of suggestions for names and titles to look up. How can our listeners get in touch with you? Are you on Twitter by any chance? No, I'm not. Are you on but Facebook? Facebook. Uh, is that okay if they just approach you that way? Sure, yeah, sure. Wonderful. Or they can get to me through the star. The star, okay. So they can email yeah. the star. And they can email the star and then, well, I hope the star people get in touch with me, you know. Then, <laughs> then I, and yeah. your column is bi-weekly, correct? Once every two weeks? Once a fortnightly. Oh, once a fortnightly, yeah. all right. Fortnightly. Correct. So fortnightly yes. and mm. they can follow your thoughts there. And I think it's well archived. People can find all your previous articles as well that touch yes. on the topics we talked about yes. today. And mm. if they're curious, they can look up your novels as well, Echoes of Silence, yes. The Old House and Other Stories, Days of Change, Tales from the Baran River. Are they widely available? Not really. Not really. Because <laughs> booksellers don't pay me. Oh. So people have to come and... Right. They have to get in touch with me. Okay, great. So they I can will, do that yeah. if they want mm. to look up your work further. Or they can email the show, bfmnightschool@gmail.com, or look us up on Facebook, type BFM Night School, and you'll find the page. Be sure to like it if you haven't yet. Download our app that is at the Apple App Store as well as Google Play. Once again, thank you, Gua Eng, for joining us. This is me, Ahmad Fawad Rahmat, uh, Night School for BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.